and welcome to today's event on soil health and agriculture going beneath the surface. My name is Dave Keating. I'm coming at you live from the Euractive Studios in the heart of the EU quarter. And today we're going to be talking about soil, which is a non-renewable resource and one of the foundations of our ecosystem. Now, the European Commission has identified healthy soils as essential for a variety of reasons, including climate neutrality, a clean and circular economy, halting deforestation, desertification and land degradation, and reversing biodiversity loss. It isn't just environmental reasons that make healthy soil important. It's also key to ensuring productive and sustainable agriculture. It's difficult for a farmer to make a profit without healthy soil. But soil is facing multiple threats today, such as erosion, floods, landslides, contamination, and loss of soil organic matter and biodiversity. In agriculture, there are several available tools and practices that can support soil health and facilitate its role in combating and adapting to climate change. For instance, conservation agriculture and regenerative agriculture are two of the systems based on no-till farming that can reduce the carbon footprint by transforming the soil from a carbon emitter to a carbon sink, counteracting soil threats and increasing the soil's capacity to retain nutrients and water. But not all of these tools are without controversy. So today we're going to talk about some of these available tools and how they fit into the regulatory environment in Europe. What are their advantages and what are their disadvantages and how should they best be used? For that, we've assembled a panel of experts to discuss this issue with us here today. We have here next to me Professor Gottlieb Basch, President of the European Conservation Agriculture Foundation. We have Professor Bernhard Streit, Professor for Agricultural Mechanization at the Bern University of Applied Sciences. We have Max Schulman, an arable farmer from Finland and vice chair of the Phytosanitary Working Party at the Farmers Association Copa Kojeka. And we have Karina von Detten, Director of Portfolio Solutions for, the, for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa at the agricultural chemical company New Farm. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us today. Now, you watching at home and also here in the room will be able to ask your questions to the panelists using Slido. So you'll see that hashtag that just came up on your screen. You can scan that. If you're in the audience in person, you can also scan it uh, from the monitor, and you can put your questions in there. We'll be taking questions both from the in-person audience and for the online audience via Slido. You can go ahead and start putting your questions in now. I'll see them. It's actually very helpful to me to know what you want to talk about as we move into the Q&A portion. So go ahead and put those questions in now if you already know what you'd like to ask. All right, Gottlieb, let's start with you. I, I mentioned some of the issues that are facing soil at the beginning. Can you explain to us why it's important to guard against soil erosion and degradation? Well, <clears throat> we all know that uh, soil degradation is uh, a, a phenomenon uh, which is as old as uh, or almost mankind. Once we started to uh, do agriculture, uh, we uh, intervened uh, in the soil structure and uh, after that, uh, soil erosion and soil degradation starts. There's a very good book on this issue, which, which is called Dirt by David Montgomery. It's called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations, where he clearly uh, links uh, the agriculture activity with the uh, erosion and the decline of civilizations. Uh, 
But also here in Europe, uh, soil erosion has been identified as uh, the major threat to, to soils back in 2002 when the discussion around the soil uh, framework directive started. I was also part of this soil advisory forum and since then I think there was more and more awareness that uh, the soil threats are also an issue here in Europe. And well, already in, uh, well, in 2015, <coughs> for example, the Joint Research Center of the European Commission uh, launched uh, well, uh, notice saying that in Europe, one billion tons of soil is each year eroded by water erosion. Uh, just to have an idea what uh, this, uh, this amount of soil uh, means, it's two centimeters of the entire surface of Belgium. One billion uh, <coughs> of tons of soil lost to erosion. And also the costs of this uh, erosion, only uh, the loss of agricultural productivity due to erosion uh, amounts to 1.25 billion euros each year. And the overall soil degradation process in Europe uh, accounts for 50 billion uh, of euros of losses each year. So uh, this is just to have an idea about, uh, about the seriousness and about the impact of soil degradation and soil erosion. And I think this makes clear why we have to do something to stop this. Now, Bernhard, you've worked on one possible solution to soil erosion, which is conservation agriculture. How does that work in terms of controlling soil degradation? Well, thank you, Dave. Uh, I'm coming more from the applied and practical um, side and when we want to protect the soil, we are using the three principles of uh, conservation agriculture. The first is uh, not tilling the soil, no uh, soil movement, no, no soil or only minimum soil disturbance. Uh, this alone, this factor alone does stabilize the soil in one way, but uh, on the long term it creates more uh, concrete, let's say, if you don't uh, move the soil anymore. So we need other factors that help us to improve soil quality. The second pillar uh, is the permanent soil cover or permanent root system that stabilizes the soil. The root system is like a, a trampoline. So when, you, when you are jumping on it, it, uh, it is flexible. And the soil cover uh, is also, it creates an ideal habitat for beneficial organisms, soil organisms, and in particular uh, earthworms. And finally, we need biodiversity. If the earthworms have uh, just a uniform diet, they are not feeling happy, so we need to give them a diverse food through diverse, and apply, uh, diverse crop rotations uh, with other elements. You can use your fantasy, uh, such as um, also uh, intercropping system using cover crops. And all, the, all these three principles are like targets. We know that in practice, sometimes we need compromises. Okay, if we skip one, the building does not fall apart, but uh, only these three pillars are to, to ensure that it works. You mentioned the regenerative agriculture as a new term um, coming on. So regenerative agriculture uh, does, does also, um, the, the base of um, regenerative agriculture are these three principles of CA and trying to improve um, organic and, and conventional system uh, and to improve, again, the soil quality. 
So, Max, let's turn to you next. You were working on the ground, with the ground, as a farmer. How important is healthy soil for your yields? It's very important. <clears throat> if you think about it, I mean, that's my production unit. That's from where, whatever I do, everything starts from the soil. I put the seed in there, it has to grow. That means that the soil has to be in good shape to be able to maintain it, to have the fertility in it and all this. So, I mean, yes, soil is very important. And I mean, there are many possibilities to, how would I say, to make it better. Some of them are faster, some of them are slower, but you cannot do anything just by one thing. And there is one thing also to remember that most of these things will take some time when you start to change. For instance, the method how you are planting, going from conventional where you would have used more plowing and then harrowing, then planting, and you're going first to min till maybe, and then you start to go with some fields into direct seeding. That takes some time when you do this, and it will take about three to five years when you really learn which of, which of your own fields on farm level fits, for instance, to direct seeding. Which one works better with uh, some mintil or direct seeding two to three years, and then which ones work better with cover crops. So that you have to take time, but as every farmer, what every farmer is doing is to try to protect the soil, because that is his unit, that's his production unit. Depending on how you use it, you can spoil it faster or slower, or you can make it better, faster, or slower. So I think that we all, as farmers, are looking at the soil through really, how would I say, green eyes, to make sure that they will be and stay productive for a longer period of time. And there are a lot of things, I mean, the water has to be able to stay in the soil, you have to lead the excess water away, you have to have your tiling in shape, you have to have your pH, at the right level, you have to have the ground in such a shape that you have there enough organic matter. I mean, there is a huge biodiversity under the root system, under the soil. We talk about biodiversity in Europe. I think that if we would look just under the soil, we would already say that we can achieve the biodiversity goals, more or less, because it's a huge biodiversity underneath there. Like we already heard, you have to make sure that the earthworms stays happy down there. So you have to make also think about them. You have to feed them. You can keep the root system in place by having cover crops during the off season. You can have cover crops that will actually create their more nitrogen as well. So it will also help you. So now we come into the crop rotation that you will be actually growing on top of it. So it's not only what's underneath. It's also what you grow on top, how much you remove from there, not only the crop itself or the seeds, mainly also the full crop, do you take the straw away or not? So, I mean, plenty of things can be done. But for us, the soil is number one. And keeping those earthworms happy, for sure. For sure, come on, who would not like to keep the earthworms happy? <laughs> I mean, the fisherman likes to go and get them, and we like to see them in the soil as well. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, Karina, we know that conservation agriculture is... It's not a tool, it's a system of tools, right? It's a package. So tell us about some of the tools that are within that package um, and, and how they work. Thanks, Dave. Well, I, I think we've heard already quite, quite a bit uh, about uh, conservation agriculture as such, but maybe not all of us are so familiar with the term yeah? because it's, uh, it's, something, it's, it's one of these buzzwords that you find all over the papers. But uh, let's think about it uh, for, for a sec. So we're talking about something that is a sustainable production system in agriculture. 
And when we think about what it's supposed to do, it's supposed to avoid soil erosion, it's supposed to uh, ensure biodiversity um, for sure, and it's supposed to reduce the resources. Careful, Max. <laughs> um, reduce the, um, preserve the resources that we use to, to, um, to, to conduct um, agricultural practices. So regarding the concrete tools, and I think we need to go a bit deeper into it than also listening to, to, to Max and the others. We are um, we're thinking about something that will have the minimum impact on the soil. So the least soil disturbance as we're talking. And uh, the, the green cover um, on, on crops and on the soil is important as well. And crop rotations, uh, to have that right, um, is also really important to make sure that the, the soil has as much peace as it can. Since, since we've already had quite a bit of reference to it, for, for me, mm, looking at soil reminds me of looking at the sea and discovering all the magic and the mystery below the surface. Because we talked about the earthworms, for sure they are the most emblematic ones to, to protect, but there's so much more going on. I mean, we have... Um, we have um, uh, communicate, communication systems in the soil. We have bacteria, um, bacillus, um, stimulating root growth. Yeah? We have so, so much that is happening that we need to make sure that we not only protect it, but, and this is then maybe taking us more to regenerative um, agriculture, another one of these um, buzzwords out there. And we need to make sure that we get better at it, that we can make, um, make it... Make it um, um, yeah, more conducive to have um, a healthy planet. Yeah, it's interesting the comparison you make there between, I think people are familiar with the undersea world. They know that there's this whole world that exists under the surface of the water, but they're less aware of this whole world that exists under the surface of the soil, partly because we can't physically enter the soil, I guess, like we can enter the water, can't go diving into the soil, uh, but it is a complex ecosystem that is similar to what exists um, underwater. Gottlieb, um, in terms of, you know, we've discussed a lot of these tools, um, and the question is whether farmers want to use the tools, right? So they're, they're there. Um, how challenging is it to have farmers adopt these tools? What, type of, what types of things do you hear from farmers when you are discussing these things with them? Well, farmers, uh, above all, need to make money. That's one thing. And they try uh, to use the tools in a very rational way, not to spend too much, uh, not more than is needed. So, but they need to have the tools to uh, make the things, make things right, and uh, to uh, well to perform conservation agriculture. Of course, uh, we do need uh, inputs, uh, external inputs, uh, to provide nutrients. Uh, to the plants, we need to control weeds, we need, uh, if necessary, to control pests, but we must say that applying the three principles of conservation agriculture, we can uh, lower these external inputs, especially uh, when it comes to insecticides, the crop diversity and uh, the improved habitat and conditions for uh, predators and uh, 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 insects and and we we are able to lower and lower more and more the input of insecticides for example and even uh, fungicides 
But for example, for this, farmers would need, would need to have uh, a cropping system and a crop rotation uh, that allows uh, to produce, uh, well, uh, different crops uh, economically. And this is often uh, an issue uh, that hinders a good crop rotation, for example. So uh, if we want to incentivize farmers to use these tools that uh, uh, conservation agriculture provides, they should have uh, the necessary incentives to do these wide crop rotations, for example. So these are some of the tools. But uh, if they were able to go for the full uh, system of conservation agriculture, we, are, uh, we hear more and more that uh, farmers are able to uh, decrease uh, external inputs. Also, in, when it comes to uh, nutrients, for example, the better uh, soil health, uh, the increased uh, soil organic matter content uh, provides a better nutrient cycling, uh, allowing for a reduction of uh, nutrients, especially uh, of nitrogen. Um, so Max uh, got the mention that farmers are going to be concerned about their bottom line. They're also going to be concerned about the health of their soil. They don't want to do anything to their soil that would damage it. You know, you wouldn't want a one-off solution that then damages your soil in future years, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what your considerations are in terms of maintaining healthy soil while also wanting a productive season? Uh, and also, what are the costs associated with these uh, with these tools, and how do they compare to other methods of farming? It's a very good question, I mean. But I think that I have to start, I mean, saying that they have to be, like we already heard, there has to be an economical driver behind it. I mean, that's the first thing. <clears throat> that's how it starts. I mean, if you look at the three pillars of sustainability, if the economical one is not fulfilled, it's very difficult to bring in the ecological or the social one in there in a good way. So those you have to keep always in mind. Farmers are working all the time very close to the nature. So I mean, the ecological one is there all the time. How much more you can do that and how much more will you be able to invest in doing it, that depends on then how much you will be able to get more from the market. So first thing is to have a good and working market so that you will actually be able to bring in a good rotation. But how to start? I can tell, for instance, from my own farm. The first thing what I started to do is I have clay soils. You have different types of soils. I have heavy clay with over 50% clay, so they are very prone then for compaction. So that also means that you need to make sure that whenever you drive there, you have very good tires. Simple thing as tires on your tractor. Low pressure tires or double wheels, duels all over, and not drive when it's too wet. It's a simple thing. Everybody can do this. You can invest, and that's not an enormous investment. It's an investment, but not big. You also can look and see when it's the right time to go out on the fields. So it starts from that, your own activity into it. Then, for instance, to, main, to go into direct seeding, for instance, that's already an investment. In the planter, you will invest, I mean, we are talking about tens of thousands of euros. And you can, you know, you can invest even up to hundred thousands of euros into planters, depending on which size and for what kind of a purpose it is. So they are already big investments when you go into this. So, I mean, if you want to do it just with a flick of your fingers, you really need to make sure that you do the right type of investment there because you can really mess up your own soils even without you noticing it in the beginning. Too heavy equipment, too fast, too early. So you need one more time to know your own soils, 
know how good in shape they are, and then it, that, it starts from the water. How do you have the system? I mean, is it too wet, the fields? Do you lead the water away from the fields in the right way and all of these? And then you can start. And then you start looking at your rotation. Then you start looking into your cover crops. And then you for sure are also looking how will you be able to raise the organic matter in your soils. If you don't have animals, if you are not a mixed farm, you need to bring it in from outside. Maybe some biogas plant is nearby. Start to explore what exists there for nutrients that you can bring in there to be able to enhance your organic matter in the field. So, I mean, plenty of things. There is no one size fits all. But I would say first thing is learn your own soils, learn how they work, check the tires on your machines, not too heavy machines, and then on you start to look what you are pulling behind it. So I think it's a recipe that everybody can follow, but they will follow it in a different way. I have been doing direct seeding on, since 1992, and I put into the soil at the same time fertilizer, the main crop seeds, and a cover crop in one go. And I do it in a white clover cover crop that has not been sprayed away most of the times, not always. So, I mean, I have a big portfolio of tools that I use together with the crop rotation, but I look at the market as well. If you only fixate totally on the rotation and not at the market, you most probably will lose the economical sustainability. So, I mean, there are plenty of moving targets when it comes into this. Bernhard, for the um, technologies and tools that you've looked at, um, how do you assess the costs in terms of the benefit, or the cost-benefit analysis for farmers who are thinking about using it? And also, are there drawbacks as well to the technologies? What are the, what are the positives and what are the negatives? Well, what we see is that uh, we have to distinguish between the long-term experience and uh, the farmers that do the system since a long time uh, or also in, in our area where we have started also in the 80s with this technology and farmers that want to start with the system right now. So there we have two completely different situations also in terms of costs. Um, I'm so happy that you, that you uh, are pointing out costs. Um, we see that farms, it, it is, on farms it's a process to gain experience and also to educate and, and to start with, uh, you, you, you mentioned, with minimum tillage. This is okay, but we have to bear in mind that this creates costs because if I have an equipment on my farm uh, suitable for, for, for conventional tillage, for minimum tillage, and I want to start with direct seeding, then I need for all three, or at least for all two systems, uh, an adapted technology. And this is a cost driver at the beginning. When on the farm, the decision one is, is taken that uh, they will go on with conservation agriculture or, or no tillage or reduced tillage, then all the other machines will go away and they can focus and optimize the one mechanization. And then the cost will drop. And uh, the other thing is the experience. We see once on farms they start to, to uh, seed and to try with this minimum tillage approach and going then slightly, uh, slowly to no tillage. It's uh, a huge um, curve, uh, a positive curve to gain experience. Maybe in, on this way up, experience are not always positive. So we have to calculate extra costs for um, bad luck, let's say. 
and for, let's say, a detour to gain more experience, or uh, bad advice by people from the outside, something like that. This creates cost. But at the end, in the long term, and we are talking about at least five years, uh, then the own experience and the confidence in the system will raise up. Also, how to use um, the, 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 um, the fertilizer properly, how to combine fertilizer with, with plant protection measures. This does not pop up in one year, so it's a question of time. And at the beginning, so the costs are definitely, we have to calculate more costs, higher costs, but in the long term, we can calculate lower costs. Let's move on to the regulatory aspects. Um, Karina, we know that some of the tools that are used in conjunction with um, uh, conservation agriculture, particularly the chemical tools, have been controversial here in Brussels. They've had a bit of a wild regulatory ride, you could say. Um, how does the current EU and national legislation and regulation affect uh, the ability for farmers to exercise conservation agriculture? Well, surely um, the um, European regulatory environment does not make it very easy for farmers to have a, a plentiful choices of tools um, to pick from. Um, that being said, we have a European regulatory system that has um, um, the human safety and environmental safety as a top priority. And as I think citizens of Europe, we can all sign up to that as a, as a, as a common goal. But um, more concretely, yeah, in conservation agriculture, um, there, there still are tools available. Um, the, um, uh, the importance of weed control was, was pointed out earlier. If, um, if you can avoid uh, having multiple entries into the field already, yeah, by smartly across the entire cultural season, agricultural season, uh, picking the, the right activities to do, at the right moment, with the right tires, you, you can do a lot. And uh, I think the, uh, uh, the topic that you're alluding to um, in Europe in terms of being uh, in controversial discussions is for sure glyphosate as an as a, um, active substance. And glyphosate is one of these tools that, that does the job, yeah? if, if we like it or not. And uh, we are currently in the midst of a um, re renewal process for this um, active substance, which is um, deeply, deeply uh, studied, probably the most uh, studied active substance in the world. And um, yeah, we hope that it will be um, renewed by the end of this year. And again, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, its suitability for agricultural production and conservation um, agriculture um, underpinned. Gottlieb, same question for you. How does conservation agriculture work with the current regulatory environment, um, and, and how might it look different if the regulatory environment changed? Well, <clears throat> for the moment, we are still uh, quite happy with the regulatory environment because we also see uh, the need for uh, uh, safe products, that we are confident that we can use those products without uh, doing any harm nor to the environment, nor uh, to people, or to food, uh, and so on. But uh, I think, uh, and uh, Karina mentioned it already, uh, glyphosate is uh, an, a tool that does a, a good job. It does it for uh, many decades right now. And uh, it would uh, not be easy uh, to replace uh, this 
uh, active uh, substance. Uh, there were other means, but probably uh, more expensive and more detrimental uh, to both uh, uh, to the environment and to food safety. Uh, so, uh, and I also would like to mention, uh, um, or uh, well, uh, a myth that is out there that conservation agriculture requires more herbicide inputs, and this is simply not the fact. There is a shift in uh, the weed control where we uh, con uh, concentrate on the uh, beginning of the cropping season, where we uh, try to get uh, the field clean, and then, without disturbing the soil, <coughs> we uh, have much less weed infestation at the later stage of the crop, and can therefore reduce uh, the input of further uh, herbicides. And also, even the, the, the soil cover also allows uh, for reducing herbicides, uh, the use of herbicides, because the, it's a physical barrier, actually, to weeds uh, to emerge uh, at a later stage. So uh, it's not the case that uh, conservation, agric uh, conservation agriculture requires more herbicide inputs. Uh, and over the long term, and with a good crop rotation, we are even able to reduce it, because we do not increase uh, the wheat seed bank, we do not bury wheat seeds and bring them up uh, in, a ne in the next year. So uh, we can uh, do a good job uh, in wheat control based on the principles of conservation agriculture. And we'll come back to this glyphosate issue in the audience Q&A. I see already we have some questions on that. I'll come to those questions in just a moment. But I did want to go, Bernhard, to you and ask about, so we have targets uh, for soil. We have these uh, targets established by the Mission for Soil Health and Food. Um, do you consider that the soil health targets that have been uh, come up with, are they realistic? Uh, is there a good basis globally for having targets for soil health? Well, targets are always, it's always good to have targets and I hope targets in combination with the vision that we want to save the soil. This is the beginning for everything we do and uh, we much appreciate the discussions now going on in this direction and also to question what uh, has been done so far and to, to really to reflect if this is uh, okay still and if, if it, or if we should um, adapt it something. Now, if it comes then to, to adaption, of course, uh, these adaptions of, of, for instance, conservation agriculture has to be done locally. And so also uh, all the measures that will be proposed to achieve these goals and this vision are, have to be adapted locally. And what, what is now indeed going on uh, here, it's not so, uh, I, I'm a little bit more from outside, so I, I have the outside view. Uh, as a Swiss, you know. So, um, <laughs> but I see it, it, the goals are the same. Maybe the way we come forward is, is, is not always the same. What we also see is, uh, even if we have a good vision, sometimes we have to struggle a lot, a lot with the tradition, with the structures that have been built, also with education system. I come back to, uh, I again come back to this. And also the defin definition of what is good agriculture practice this term has been used, it's been used uh, widely and, and often, and I think there we have to adapt locally, or we have now to, to keep in mind that the good agricultural practice that has been practicing so far is 
It's leading to what we have in terms of soil quality. So we are talking about soil quality. This means we have to do something. We have to improve it. So um, yes, uh, we need this. We need regulation to to give a new direction, but uh, we need to to have it adapted to local conditions, of course. Max, how do you feel about targets? Are targets helpful for the individual farmer on this question of soil specifically? It is. <clears throat> it's always good to set the target and all this and, and open, you know, the discussion, open the eyes and make people look, for instance, now in this case, on the soil, what they are farming. It's always good if you have a target. But then it comes the question, do there have to be legally binding targets? That's a totally different question when it comes into it. Like we already heard, I mean, there is no one-size-fits-all out there. Different types of soils, different types of crops pH might be 10 or it might be 5 or under 5. I mean, you have huge variation, all of this. Then we have to be able, if you have targets, how will we go in and make sure that these targets will be fitting at least to the European region? Because we already have, just in one country, we might have huge variation in between the soils. Then it comes what crops are grown on them. Everything, I mean, it's for sure, it's true. I mean, the, the seed is put in the ground and you will have a crop growing up and roots down. There ends the similarity, mainly, I mean. So, I mean, it's very difficult when you start to work on targets. So you have to then be able to do it based on the local, like we already heard before. So you have to be able to involve then, if it is the member state, or even go further down to make sure that there is a real understanding of the local conditions on the soils, etc., how to do this. So targets, yes, but when it starts to become legislation, usually at that point when you come down to such a matter as soil, you most probably will not have it easy to find this kind of a target that so you would really be able to point out, yes, it is seven. That's the pH that everybody has to have in all over Europe. That's it. I don't believe in that. Yeah, go ahead. Just to add to your point um, about the inflexibility of a legally binding target, um, there's another aspect um, that, that drives uh, farmers crazy. It used to be called weather. Now it's called climatic condition or climatic uh, climate change. And, and I think uh, uh, we, we, need to make, we need to create targets and, and, uh, and, and work towards those, but allow the local def definition and declinations of how it could best work according to what you pointed out. And then, in certain conditions, also allow the flexibility, because otherwise uh, you may end up in a, in a yeah, non-practical way of doing things. You will get more gray hairs yeah. as a farmer. Or lose Or them. even lose <laughs> Well, let me take there. We have a question on that topic, actually, from the audience. So this is a question for Max from Stefan Kohler. Um, don't you think the common agricultural policy tells too many details about, the, what the, what, about what the farmer has to do. Is this the reason that the farmers can't work with the soil? In, a, in many ways, yes. I mean, you are focusing maybe away from the soil itself in many ways through the policy that it has been put in place. Soil is not part of it in the right way. I mean, I think if there would be better flexibility, you would put maybe more effort into productivity out of your production unit. Also from a legislative way, like the common agriculture policy, you suddenly would actually move the focus from going just 
to be able to get the best possible subsidy scheme in place down to how you will be able to enhance your productivity and in that way take the soil and also the new agricultural practices into consideration. So I think that we have come, in my opinion, to the end of a CAP that what we have today. It's very hard for a farmer to say, and I am not the one that will be most probably working on it. But still, I think as a farmer, it has gone far enough now. It's a little bit too much bureaucracy involved and too many things that you have to follow, consider all of these. Just by going in and say, you have to have a rotation in place. Most of the farmers have a rotation in place, but you have to make sure that it fits into the market. If it doesn't fit into the market, then I still have to plant three crops, and I know out of these three, one crop there is not even be a market for on the market. I know when I plant it, that's a waste of time and money. Why do it? Just as an example. So I think that if you would go in more to this kind of a productivity, bring in the three pillars of sustainability in there with the economical one in number one, I think we would be able to achieve more. Gottlieb, do you think the CAP as it stands now is helpful in encouraging uh, uh, this type of agriculture or not helpful? Is it hindering people uh, for, for starting up conservation agriculture? Well, uh, CAP over uh, the past three decades, I would say, well, uh, came up with all or, well, with many different types of regulations, uh, type of subsidies, and, uh, and uh, often CAP left uh, things to the member states to define what they uh, can do, what they want to do. And uh, in, many, in many European countries, actually, there were uh, uh, agri-environmental measure, uh, measures that promoted uh, adoption of uh, conservation agriculture. Uh, in other uh, countries, uh, nothing at all. So it was very different. And uh, well, conservation agriculture is actually uh, something that uh, bears a risk at the very beginning. And uh, if uh, this risk has to be taken by someone, not, uh, it cannot be uh, taken only by the farmers, you see. Uh, okay, as it was said, in the, in the medium to long term, uh, we save costs, but in the very beginning, uh, the risk uh, and the initial investment costs uh, would need uh, some uh, well, kind of uh, support uh, to enter uh, into conservation agriculture. But uh, I think with a regulatory uh, framework, I think you should and will not convince farmers to take over uh, conservation agriculture. Only, only when there was in place a very good system that uh, would pay for uh, result-based outcomes, for example, the provision of ecosystem services, and if there was a clear uh, uh, mon monitoring and uh, verification of these outcomes of conservation agriculture uh, in, well, in different uh, issues like carbon farming, carbon sequestration, uh, biodiversity uh, improvement, uh, cleaner water, uh, you name it. So if there was uh, a system in place rewarding farmers for uh, and conservation agriculture in this sense, because you cannot achieve, and you mentioned the targets set by the, by the uh, mission of, uh, for healthy soils, 
Well, they, you, you cannot achieve these targets without uh, telling or establish these targets without telling how to achieve those targets. And I'm pretty convinced that uh, to achieve these targets, only the principles of conservation agriculture are capable to do so. And for that, we need uh, result-based uh, uh, measures that clearly identify the uh, co-benefits that conservation agriculture is delivering. And uh, when this is in place, then I would say conservation agriculture would be uh, taken up uh, much quicker. Well, we have a question that's come in precisely on this point about that, that interim period. These questions are um, for Bernhard. So there are two questions for you, Bernhard, one of them being on this topic. They're from Kohn van Kier. So first question is, when moving from conventional tillage to no or reduced tillage, farmers may temporarily face a yield dip as soils have to adapt to the new conditions. How, how can we support farmers during this transition period? And second question from Kohn van Kier is, is there sufficient scientific evidence that conservation farming and reduced tillage can actually help turn agricultural systems into a farming sink? Carbon sink, I think you meant <clears throat> But the first question. Um, we try to reduce this risk as much as possible. So there are some elements. Um, I think it's a little bit too complicated if I explain them now in detail. So if this uh, gentleman w would like to have more information, I'm, I'm available. But there are some principles uh, how to go from conventional tillage to reduced tillage and even furthermore. If we apply them from the beginning, so I give you an example. If I want to start with, um, with cereals, for instance, I have to make sure that we are in a, in a good crop rotation. If I grow barley after winter wheat, as an example, uh, it is probably not the best choice to start because we know that um, one of the major weed we have in conservation agric agriculture are the volunteers from the previous crops. So uh, if I do not want to end up in a mixture of barley and winter wheat, then I should choose another previous crop. Okay, choosing is sometimes, uh, sometimes a little bit difficult if you have not the economic possibilities. But these are, these are the elements, if we do not respect them, we end up in a, in, in a reduced yield. The other thing is cover crops. We, we, we see that cover crops is really a key to um, maintain the system or to reduce risks. Now the key question always is, what kind of cover crop should we grow in which area? So and there, people like me from university or others are really um, uh, are in charge to make sure that the proper um, field trials are made, that we have selection trials and to look what is growing in this area and what not. In some dry areas, maybe uh, cover cropping is not a good idea at all if you have uh, 300 or less millimeters precipitation and the other. In other areas, it could be helping. These are the local adapt adaptions. So, and, and there are also fertilization. Uh, we know that um, the mineralization in the spring is, is slower when we do not till the soil than if we have the tillage soil, so we give a little bit more. Uh, if we apply um, fertilizer, we, we do it um, earlier and we raise the, the, the rate, but reduce the rate afterwards for the second and third pass, and so on. 
for the second question, um, scientific evidence for, for uh, agriculture being a sink for carbon. Now, uh, I hesitate to say yes, because if I just make the balance, if I calculate what we are bringing in the system and taking out the system, we can have a positive aspect, a positive carbon balance. But the number that is increasing every year is very small. And it depends on, I don't want to lecture about soil science and, and uh, the carbon cycle, but it depends on the soil and on, on the texture. So uh, yes, the, uh, this, this kind of evidence is here. So the colleagues have, been sh uh, have shown that if we are on heavy soils, the potential to raise the, uh, the, the um, soil organic matter content is much better than if I am on a sandy soil. But to have like a certificate to say, if you go to conservation agriculture or to any other system, soil saving system, and you will raise your soil organic matter content by 1% in 10 years. This I can sign because in many, in many places, in many, in many cases, this is just a dream. Max, you wanted to come in on that, and I'm also going to just use the opportunity to also put a question to you related uh, from Marie-Cécile Demave. Um, if, conver if conversion from conventional agriculture to conservation agriculture needs a five-year transition, why not set public payments during this period of time, as is done to support conversion from conventional to organic farming, or could the same payments be used? So I think first we wanted to come in on the, the the uh, carbon, carbon, carbon sink, sink issue yeah. and then the <clears throat> no, I would like just to think, I mean, wouldn't it be better just at this stage, I mean, here it came already in the measurements and how it is, to talk about how can we be carbon neutral, maybe more. If that already would be, at least on the arable side, can we even achieve that? So one day, all the grain that is traded inside European Union would be carbon neutrally produced. That could maybe be a thing that I at least would sit put on the table and say, is this achievable. And I think that could maybe be a start. We wanted to have some measurements, some drivers, something like this. This could maybe be something to look into. That's not a bad idea at all. I mean, we do have the CAP and we do have the five-year periods that uh, are quite short. But I mean, it might help in this way, this five-year period, to be able to have a change from conventional, whatever conventional is. That's also a big and broad aspect when you look at conventional, going then more into a you know, different type of agriculture, regenerative, conservation, etc., and try to find out which one it would be then the preferable one and to learn. So there again it comes into which one and how do we choose. Is it just to move from conventional with tillage down to a no-till? system and all this. And yes, for that, we already see that some countries do have these kind of measures in place through the environmental schemes, agro-environmental schemes, etc., coming in as well. And yes, I think these could be used, but at the same time, I would like to connect the market in there as well. Usually, it starts to work better if you also have there a small, how would I say, push-pull mechanisms coming in from the market as well in the way. And maybe this carbon neutrality could be one thing that you are striving to change the way to farm, but at the same time trying to achieve a carbon neutral, you know, cropping system 
or crop produce that would then find the market because I would like to tie them in. If you only go in there with the subsidies and all of these, what happens after that five-year period if your farm has not really been able to convert into this? And it will take you seven or ten years before you really achieve it, depending on your soils and all of these. What about that? Maybe the farmer will just lose the interest and go back. So we should encourage that to continue as well. So I would try to see how can we fit the market in there as well. Let's go back to the glyphosate topic. We've had two questions come in for Karina on this topic. Uh, so the first one is from Jakob Niergaard. How would a ban on glyphosate affect soil health with regard to soil sequestration, uh, soil biodiversity, and leaching of nutrients, etc.? Second question from Bill Grayson. Is glyphosate really a safe product when the World Health Organization's committee declared it is a probable carcinogen after it has already spread throughout farmed environment and entered the human food chain so that most of the people tested are found to contain residues of the chemical? And this, of course, is what I was referring to before the controversy around glyphosate. So those two questions. Yeah. So um, thinking about what would agriculture in Europe look like uh, if glyphosate didn't get renewed at the end of this year. It's, it's actually not a nice picture because there is no such um, alternative to farmers to glyphosate. Yeah? There is no other molecule that can be used um, across all weeds to get the field cleaned as it was mentioned before. So it would mean that other tools would have to be used to um, get to the same result which means um, other herbicides, multiple entries into, in, into the field, which means more diesel use with the tractors. It would mean um, looking for alternatives um, uh, to, to um, basically, uh, um, so for example, mechanical, mechanical alternatives yeah, to, um, to uh, clean the fields. It's, uh, it's something that will be, for sure, a lot more costly and looking at the alternatives, probably also not with, um, with such benign uh, effects on the environment. So um, let's not even go into the topic of not being so competitive to other regions in the world that produce um, commodities, agricultural commodities as well, and have glyphosate as a um, relatively um, cheap solution at hand. So imagining... imagining um, Production in Europe, agricultural production in Europe without glyphosate, I think, is a big, big, big headache for all those that have to operate the fields. I hope you will agree with me, Max, and, and maybe maybe comment later on. Now, on the second on the second uh, question, and I and I'm actually happy to get this question because it pops up um, uh, since um, since the WHO um, agency IARC um, published uh, its, its um, classification of, of glyphosate as being carcinogenic. So it is, it is correct as such. Um, it is one of the agencies, one of the agencies of the WHO's um, uh, that has classified it as such, together with other substances as, as hot beverages or, um, 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 let's say, um, the other fries and, and, and red meat even, yeah? So... Um, it's, uh, it's, it stands there, and I don't want to say that it's, uh, it's incorrect, um, but uh, the other WHO um, agencies have, uh, um, have, um, have not followed that um, assessment. And 
actually, if you look around the world of regulators, um, there, there is none that has uh, followed this, um, uh, this path. So basically, it's, um, it's, a, it's a different way of looking at substances you know, that IREC does. And um, I have full faith in, in, the, um, um, in the assessment of, of the regulators that deal with um, um, agricultural inputs with crop protection uh, solutions. And uh, if you look at what uh, our European authorities have said on glyphosate in the last uh, 40 years, uh, since uh, more than 40 years actually, nine, since 1974, it has always come out as being uh, safe to humans and to the environment. Um, and was so last uh, in 2017, when it was last renewed. And um, I'm personally also convinced uh, that, we can, uh, it's that our authorities will reach the same conclusion again. Yeah, so it will not come out as uh, carcinogenic and, um, and not, not uh, that, um, um, deterrent to uh, human health. Max, you wanted to come in as yes, well? Yes, I would just to agree. I mean, the glyphosate is an enabler when it comes to some of these practices and most of them that we have talked about today. I mean, it helps when you go in and start to turn your farming into no-till farming. It's, for instance... But also for some other crops, it is extremely important that we can actually really clean the field, like we already heard. This is a very good substance to that, because, for instance, if you are grass seed grower, I take maybe one of the worst, worst of the crops, and you want to really make sure that you change from one grass variety to another one, and you are a seed grower, you are the top of the top to be able to provide it in. The only possibility really to make sure that you do not have any cross-contamination, it is to be able to clean the field with glyphosate. So I think that we also have to look into this, these things. Otherwise, you will be, like we already heard, driving much more. I mean, you would be there tilling much more. You would have wind erosion. You would have much more fields without cover during the off-season. So, I mean, you would change the landscape. I mean, the biodiversity, like everybody would like to have, will be changed back to a more grayish, blackish, depending on how the soil is. I mean, you will have more bare soil. So I think that now it is really the time to rethink. What do we want? Maybe there can be found, as we already know, that you can just do one pass on each year on one field. I mean, we can look at it. But I think that here we have the solution should come through our, you know, really risk-based thing, and look at the science. The science should be here, the one that we should follow. And I mean, this is what we as farmers also look at, because I mean, what we put in the field, it has gone through a very good testing sequence and all this, and that's it. If it is safe to use, we use it. And this is a substance that we can see it has multiple use, and it is necessary. But for sure, you can put in the mitigation methods, etc. If we see that in certain regions and areas, it should maybe not be used and all these, like, for instance, parks or close to schools or, or railway or something like this. I mean, we might find possibilities to reduce it, but when it comes to agriculture, with all the policies that we have in place and the ones that we know that are now on the way, it might be very difficult to reach these goals if we don't have that as one of the tools in our toolbox. Kotli, if you wanted to come in. Yeah, <clears throat> well, it's really something that Max just mentioned is uh, we need to know what we want and what priorities we want to set. Do we want to uh, improve biodiversity, to stop soil erosion, 
to sequester uh, soil organic carbon. So what, what do we need to achieve this? This we must uh, know before. And then we must decide what do we uh, accept to achieve this? What is, uh, what's the best compromise, actually? There are no free drinks. We cannot just uh, stop applying uh, plant protection products and go, want to go without them. And then what do we need to, to get the food from and, and from where? Do we want to increase uh, arable land? Do we want to uh, import more and more? What's the objective that, well, uh, recently you won't hear it, but Europe has also uh, at a certain time uh, decided that Europe should contribute to global food security. Are we going to contribute to global food security if we are uh, banning uh, more and more products uh, and uh, then producing less and less from the same field and from the same area? We must really rethink our, our strategy and, uh, well, decide what we really want. So we've had two questions come in here um, for Bernhard. The questions are, so first question is from Hans van Dam. It was claimed that food crop production relies on a sufficiently large soil biodiversity. How strong are the scientific indications for such a phenomenon, while this dependence seems to be absent for crops grown in hydroculture or hydroponic systems? Second question from Carmen McConaughey. What role do fertilizers have in soil health? Well, for the first question, um, it is quite a new technology, let's say, to grow crops without soil. And it is also an interesting thing because we have uh, growing, growing vegetable crops, for instance, we are talking about vegetable crops. Um, on, on soil, it's not the same thing as when we are growing cereals. So vegetable crops in the hydroponic systems have their advantages. Um, we see uh, a good market for this. Uh, consumers, they want to have the vegetables in a good quali quality, uh, right quantity all over the year. And uh, so this can be achieved uh, by hydroponics or or these uh, soil, soil, soilless systems. Um, scientific evidence on now on the inequality, I'm not so on the current, but um, most probably uh, what we can measure with a reasonable way, so the evidence-based thing is that there are no so many differences, but I'm not the expert on this. For the second questions, or do we want to? No, go ahead. For the second question, fertilizer. Well, uh, fertilization, fertilizer use is uh, part of every cropping system. Uh, it doesn't matter in which corner you are. Uh, what we what we are seeing is, uh, or a basic rule is, if if we don't have something in it, it nothing comes out. We are talking about cycles, and uh, if you imagine the cycle is a wheel. What we want to achieve is a wheel that turns fast. So we are in, in these cycles, and the faster it turns, the more um, biomass is produced, and the more resilient the system is to um, unfavorable conditions. And of course, fertilization, well, 
if you mean it's not fertilization, uh, I mean it's plant nutrient and plant nutrient cycle is part of every system. So in particular on this uh, soil saving uh, cropping system. And yes, the source, uh, we can, we, we would like to cover most of, of our crops or to, to nourish most of our crops with a slurry or some organic um, fertilizer. We can, so we have to add something else. If we do it in a sustainable way and in a, in a conscious way, evidence-based, we don't risk much of the negative impacts, at least what we see. Um, of course, the form we can discuss, and this is part of the education, but uh, it is part of the system. Max? We want no, I would just like to add, I think we just heard, I mean, there is also another thing, I mean, when you look, mineral fertilizer is used, absolutely, but for sure, the farmers that will get their hand on organic fertilizer, or let's say inside the farms you have your recycled manure and all of these, it is being used. Mm -hmm. And more and more, for sure, you would look and see, you would like to have off more organic type of fertilizers in there, and for where can we get it? Yes, we have their side streams coming in from for, in, for instance, biogas industry and all of these, but then we come into the question, what will be the input? What is the material that goes in to the biogas plant? If you're talking about uh, slurry, gray water, and all of these, then you come into the discussion what we already started here with just with glyphosate, how safe is it? How is the soil? Will the soil accumulate some heavy metals? Can we make sure that it is clean? So we come into that. For sure, the more we can clean, the better technologies have, are in place, the more and more of it will be used, as we see today. But it's also very costly to transport if it's water. So, I mean, now we come again into, if you have to make it into some sort of granulate or something to be spread with the machine that exists on the farm, then it would go. But that means costs into that. So there are many aspects that will play in. But yes, recycled and being part of the circular economy is something that we see more and more today. But that might be very regional. It's very difficult to say, let's take the whole EU in it. One thing that I would like to see is for sure that if we would be able just to capture the nitrogen from the water, the, from the wastewater streams that we have today, instead of just letting it go straight up back into the atmosphere, that would be a start. That would be really important. That is already clean. For sure it will cost some, but that is the first step in my mind at least. Then you at least have the nitrogen fertilizer, nitrogen part. Then to look into the next ones. There we need the technology to make sure that it is clean. I mean, you have there your pharmaceuticals, maybe microplastics, you have your heavy metals, you name it. And for sure, we as farmers would like to make sure that it is clean when we put it into our production unit, the soil. Okay, we have two questions here on carbon farming for Gottlieb. So first question from Marie-Cécile Demave. Is conservation agriculture a prerequisite for carbon farming, or can carbon farming be achieved outside of conservation agriculture? Second question from Ilona Rock from ULBF. Regarding carbon farming and payments for carbon farming, the difference between existing SOC and potential SOC is very parcel dependent, so you need to formulate the measure specifically and could end up rewarding past bad practices while penalizing good soil care. Could you comment on that? 
Well, the first question, whether uh, carbon farming and carbon sequestration is possible without uh, conservation agriculture. I would say uh, it is, but only if you shift, if you have uh, enormous inputs of organic uh, residues from elsewhere, from outside. And then it's not no longer uh, even considered uh, carbon sequestration because there is no additionality. So uh, real uh, carbon farming, in my view, <clears throat> is only uh, possible if you reduce drastically the mineralization of existing soil organic matter and if you increase your inputs both through cover crops and or uh, crop residues. So these are the prerequisites for carbon sequestration and carbon farming. And I don't see other systems but carbon, uh, co uh, conservation agriculture uh, doing this. So I would say, yes, it's a prerequisite because conventional farming over decades and decades was contributing to deplete soil organic carbon. And it's uh, considered that uh, conventional farming still uh, depletes uh, soil organic matter by 0.5% per year. So, uh, and now the second question. Sorry, could you just... Uh, the payments or no. the... The payments, yeah, right. Well, uh, payments, of course, uh, uh, in terms of payments, yeah, and I'm now also uh, in the expert group for uh, carbon farming. Uh, that expert group was established by the DG Climate. And uh, while well, we are now uh, looking at uh, possible uh, MRV systems, monitoring, uh, reporting, and verifying, and uh, okay, uh, these payments should be result-based, no doubt about that. Result-based, uh, comparing uh, the status quo today or in the past with what you are able to gain in the next future. But of course, uh, this is uh, difficult for those who have already, over the past years, increased soil organic carbon through the application of conservation agriculture, for example. But for that uh, not uh, to happen, uh, it is being considered that uh, farms can be, can be uh, compared to a regional baseline that exists in a region where you look at uh, soil organic carbon not on a specific farm, but on a regional basis. And if you perform better, then uh, you uh, can get uh, paid can uh, get paid for the carbon you already sequestered today. So, uh, but as I already mentioned as well uh, in this expert group, uh, well, if the payments are only result-based, I think we will take uh, quite a long time uh, to get conservation agriculture adopted. Uh, I am always defending a mixed system between. Uh, practice-based and result-based payments, so that uh, farmers who are doing conservation agriculture would get part of payments that they will get in a at a later stage for uh, really sequestered carbon, uh, only if they do promising uh, practices that are capable to sequester carbon, uh, they get part right now, and then uh, after five years or ten years, there will be a uh, well, uh, next assessment, a clear assessment, and then they will get uh, the rest.
So we have one more question on glyphosate that I'll put to Karina. So this is not about the WHO carcinogenic study, but a different study. Uh, so this question is from Caroline Heinzel from the European Environmental Bureau. Glyphosate affects soil communities in many different ways. For example, studies have shown that it reduces fungal biomass, but most plants rely on these fungi. Uh, the panelists seem to agree that soil biodiversity is essential for ecosystem services. So how do you br bring these two statements together? It is a very good good question, but I have to say that I'm I'm not an expert on this particular on this particular question. But I do want to say something. Um, in the process of of uh, renewal of the active substance glyphosate, the the studies that have been submitted to prove um, uh, its its lack of impact impact on the environment is is immense. So we um, have um, more than 150 new studies that go into into these aspects and also um, the literature that has been taken into consideration in this whole uh, renewal process makes it so ample and so transparent to have the right weighting of what is the impact and what is the benefit. Because as was mentioned already before, there is no such thing as agriculture without some sort of impact. Yeah? So in this particular um, question on, um, on, the, on soil organisms, and fungi would be a soil organism, it has, it has proven that it, is, it is, uh, passes all the thresholds. If there is now this one uh, particular one, may I ask uh, this person to uh, leave her contact details, and I'm very happy to get back with a precise answer. Great. That sounds good. Uh, yes, go ahead. Well, uh, if it is glyphosate, uh, then I uh, would ask uh, what she thinks about tillage. Because there is nothing more detrimental to uh, soil uh, biomass than tillage. Tillage must be considered as an earthquake for all soil living organisms. And especially fungi are so much affected by a disruption of, uh, of uh, soil structure. So you find much less fungi in tilled soils than in no-till soil. That's, I don't know where, where this comes from, but uh, the worst case scenario for uh, soil organisms is tillage. Uh, may, may I add something? I'm not aware of this story, study. I know a lot of studies, but um, we see some, uh, some parallels always that the study had been uh, done under particular assumptions and mainly or, or not uh, main, sometimes uh, glyphosate has been used on bare soil just to have the impact scientifically it has to be done because so you can um, take away all other influence factors but in practice in, in, in practice on the farms if I have to spray glyphosate on the ground on, the, on bare soil I do something wrong so the correct use of, now we are talking about glyphosate, it could be some, some other compounds, is we need it on plants, on weeds. There we need the effect. And we don't have, well, this is a theory view, as other studies are theory view. And the theoretically, our, the, our sprayer and, and the, the, the ingredients do not end up in the soil. This is not the target area. And therefore, um, okay, studies exist, okay, effects have been proven or, or not or what, whatever, 
but in practice, um, the glyphosate is used elsewhere, which might be better or might be not, but it is a different environment. And therefore, I'm, I have a little bit doubt if we can just take studies that have been done in this environment to extrapolate the conclusions on other environment. This has nothing to do with glyphosate. This has something, something to do how we, we use scientific, scientific evidence and take their, our conclusions out of it. Thanks. One note as well, I mean, we are following, the farmers are following the IPM system, integrated pest management, best practices when it comes down to use of plant protection products. So, I mean, if this is trying to show that this is being used in the way that there is nothing growing on the soil, I mean, that is wrong. That's against the IPM rules even. So I think that you have to be very careful when you look at these kind of a results where you are because usually when you go out and use any plant protection product, there is a need. There is, when it is talking about glyphosate, there is some kind of a weed that you would like to make sure that you will get rid of before you will apply there the next crop. And usually there is a crop growing, so it is not bare land like we just heard. And I also really like to bring it in there. I mean, we as farmers, we do not just like to go for fun out on the field with the plant protection products and all this. That's first of all two things. I mean, it's work and it is also a cost. And that's it. So, I mean, it's nothing that we do just for fun. And if you think of the crop, uh, cover crops, uh, Max, uh, glyphosate is plan B. Yeah. I mean, plan A is that you have your cover crops, you have the winter, you have the frost, and that takes care of your problem. And that's the IPM part. IPM. You go and look to see if it is necessary. Yeah. And if, then you take the next tool. But we need the tools. The worst scenario is if we are without tools. Yes. Well, on that note, that is all the time we have left for today's panel. I want to thank all the panelists for some really interesting uh, insights there. How about a round of applause for them? And now, if you're here in the room, I'd like to invite you outside for the reception where we can keep the conversation going about all these different elements of agriculture. And of course, if you've been watching at home, feel free to get in touch, uh, as was suggested, uh, and there could be some follow-up there. So thank you so much for spending your time with us on this topic today, and we look forward to the next panel discussion. Take care.